Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today. In moments, the economist Robert Poland will explain how Medicare for All could easily be financed, covering everyone with no copays and saving money. And then Anton Yeager will examine the shortcomings of post- or anti-work doctrine. First, Medicare for All, which is probably better branding than the geeky term single-payer. The airways and fiber-optic cables are pulsing with ginormous estimates of how much universal health coverage would cost. $32 trillion over the next decade in a headline-grabbing estimate from the Mercatus Institute, a Koch-funded free-market think tank at George Mason University. That sounds like a lot, but is it? For one thing, the study also estimated that that was $2 trillion less than it would cost to do just the same thing as we are now, which is surprising considering the source, but much less interesting to mainstream warriorts. Now the Political Economy Research Institute, Perry to its friends, at the University of Massachusetts is out with its own estimates. This is a long and rigorous study, not one of those slender pamphlets think tanks often put out. It shows we could cover everyone in the U.S. with no copays and cut overall health spending by almost a fifth. Here's lead author Robert Poland, professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts and co-director of the Institute, with the details. Bob was on this show last year to discuss his estimates of how California could finance a state-level single-payer program. Robert Poland. So, Bob, we hear all these uh, cost estimates uh, in, you know, on the TV, in the mainstream media, bourgeois press, as we used to say, that uh, put an enormous price tag on Medicare for All and say, we just can't afford this. Uh, it's just too grandiose, too expensive. This is all very, very misleading, isn't it? Completely misleading. The fact of the matter is Medicare for All will cost less than what the U.S. is now paying in health care. And that's not very hard to accomplish because what we're paying is exorbitant already. We're paying about 18% of GDP, which is $3.3 trillion. Other countries at similar development levels, such as Germany, France, UK, are paying between 9 and 11% of GDP for health care. The difference between us paying 18% and them paying 11% in the United States economy, that's $1.1 trillion. So there's got to be some number between 18% in GDP and 11% that we can easily hit through uh, establishing Medicare for All. Well, they always double count because uh, they forget that you'd be no longer paying private insurance premiums when you add up these numbers. Right. So one of the things we did in our study to try to make that point blindingly clear uh, was we set up a financing framework in which the main source of financing will still be business premiums. And we're just calling them business premiums. They are taxes, but they're still health care premiums. And we say whatever the uh, businesses who cover their workers, whatever they're paying under the existing system, the day after Medicare for All starts, they just pay 8% less. Every business that's covering their workers, whatever they pay now, they'll pay 8% less and then they're done. And that establishes the point that this system is cheaper than uh, the existing health care system. Now, what about... Out-of-pocket expenses. Medicare now, uh, there's a 20% copay. Uh, does Medicare for All envision keeping that? No, there'll be no copays, no co-financing at all. Uh, everybody just goes to see medical providers when they need to, and they don't have to worry about covering anything. I mean, there's some very, very minor copays on um, on drugs, but they're tiny. They don't amount to much. I don't even know if it's worth it to bother having them in. 
Uh, now, when people talk about uh, the U.S. healthcare system, aside from the expense, there's often people often focus on uh, the close to 10 percent that are not insured at all. It's come down a bit under the ACA, but it's still quite high. Uh, but even people with uh, insurance are often quite underinsured, right? This is an important dimension of the problem that's often overlooked. Right. So officially, we have about nine percent uninsured at present, but then. Uh, the Commonwealth Fund, which does very good studies, and I relied on them a lot in doing our own. Uh, if you look at their survey data, we have about 26% of the population underinsured. Uh, and by our definition of underinsured, these are people that did not get treatment because it was too expensive. It was going to create a hardship in terms of their budget, so they just didn't get the treatment. So if you add those two up, that's 26% plus 9%. That's over one-third of the entire population is either uninsured or underinsured. And, of course, the uninsured are not costless. They get taken care of at some public expense, don't they? Yeah, they do. Basically, what we're spending on the uninsured is roughly half of what we spend on the insured. So that comes from uh, out-of-pocket on their part, but then... Um, through basically charity and government support that covers the uninsured. Also, another point that people forget is that we already have an extremely large public sector uh, financing of, of health care, um, so that to the point where uh, what we spend on the, the public sector spends in the U.S. is often very close to what countries spend on their entire health care budgets as a percent of GDP. Right. So right now, the, our health care system is financed 60% uh, through uh, public sources. So that's Medicare, Medicaid, the Veterans Administration, the Defense Department, other public sector employee funds, and then finally the um, tax subsidies that people get when you are able to write off your health insurance costs and your taxes, which turns out to be a, a massive subsidy for the rich because they have more expensive health plans. But if you add all of those up, we're at over 60% public financing, so that when we talk about Medicare for all supplanting our existing system, what we really have to only come up with is funds to cover the 40% of a total financing that now goes into private insurance. And doing the math in my head, that 60% is roughly 10% of GDP, which is pretty much what countries like Canada and Britain are already paying. Exactly. Good math. <laughs> yes, I'm not even using Excel to figure that out. <laughs> uh, so where do these cost savings come from? I mean, you're talking about expanding coverage, not just covering the uninsured, but uh, covering the insured more adequately. So that, one presumes, would increase demand uh, for services. Uh, so how do we get the, the overall cost down? So, right, we, we are assuming that we have full coverage for everybody, no co-payments of any kind, and so we will see um, the system be utilized more. We want people to utilize the system more, especially those that have been uninsured or underinsured. So we uh, estimate as a high-end figure that uh, utilization will go up by 12% relative to what it is now. That's overall. That, is a, that number, by the way, is higher than the uh, Koch brother funded study, which was their estimate for utilization increase was 11.3%. Anyway, so then where do we get savings? The main, there are mainly three sources of savings. The biggest single one is administration. Uh, we save a huge amount on administration 
because the private insurance system now spends about 12% on administration, whereas our Medicare system spends about 2% on administration. So we assumed that Medicare for all, we wouldn't get administrative costs down to 2%, though we might have assumed that. We said administrative costs would get down to 3.5%. That means, doing all the math around that, it means that you save about 9% of total system costs through reducing the administrative burden. So that is the biggest single source of savings. The second biggest is lowering pharmaceutical prices, and that's going to be about a 6% reduction in total system costs, because in the United States today, we pay roughly 50% more for prescription drugs than, you know, Canada, Germany, France, UK, so forth. So, and the reason is that those countries bargain as a block. Their medical, their healthcare systems bargain against the pharmaceutical companies, so they get much better prices. So we got about 6% system savings there. So those are the two two biggest ones. The third biggest one is it's built in that all providers, meaning doctors and hospitals, dentists, will get Medicare rates for their billable hours. Right now they have they get higher rates when they are charging uh, private insurance companies, though they have lower rates with Medicaid. So on balance, uh, what we end up is at about 3% savings from that. And there's other sources smaller, but basically those three sources, administration, pharmaceutical pricing, and Medicare rates for providers, and that gets you to 19% total savings to operate Medicare for all relative to our existing system. And then that would pay for all the underinsured. That would pay for them, and that we still have a system that's about 10% cheaper because of the savings. Now, the big thing that happens, though, of course, the biggest reason we get savings is hundreds of thousands of people are going to lose their jobs because they're redundant, because we don't need them to, you know, to work in the private insurance system or at the doctor's offices filling out forms. So another feature of our study, which to my knowledge nobody else has done, is to think about a just transition for the people that are going to lose their jobs. So we focus on wage insurance, um, unemployment insurance at 100% of their existing wages, retraining, relocation, and and finally, and maybe most importantly, um, guarantee their full pension. By cutting prices of drugs, by reducing uh, payments to hospitals and doctors, uh, you're going to generate substantial opposition politically. What do we do about that? The doctors and hospitals are going to come out fine because one of the things we spend a lot of time uh, showing is that, yes, we're going to lower their rates by about 7%. On the other hand, they are going to also save on their administrative time. And so on average, doctors are spending about 8% of their week on administrative time. So if we cut their rates by 7% on average, but their administrative time goes down by 8%, that means they have 8% more time to see patients and, and, and bill for their time with patients. So on balance, they're going to come out okay. Uh, the pharmaceutical companies and the private health insurance companies are not going to come out okay. In fact, we're talking about basically the euthanasia of private health insurance. 
So, yes, they will be massively opposed, and the only way to deal with that is to fight against it. But almost everybody hates those people anyway. Everybody hates those people. And, and look, Medicare for All is going to save people money, including businesses. So the, the way we design the payment system, the biggest winners in Medicare for All are middle-sized businesses with, let's say, around 10 to 15 employees, and the in the U.S. middle class, if you are middle class, a middle class family, and you have to buy individual insurance on one of the exchanges, Medicare for all is going to save you about 14 percent. Your income is going up 14 percent just because you switched your insurance. Same goes for businesses, as I just said. Any business that's covering their workers is going to get an 8 percent reduction in their health care costs. So why would they be against this? They shouldn't be. So it's really, these people are going to be isolated. And, um, you know, I did a study for California uh, last year, and it passed the state Senate. Literally, it passed the day after I gave my talk in Sacramento. Jerry Brown, our old friend, Jerry Brown, he blocked the measure. He, He was against it. So there was no way it was getting through. But now there's a new governor, Newsom, who ran on Medicare for All. So we have to hold his feet to the fire and make sure he follows through on his promises. I'm speaking with the economist Robert Poland, lead author of a study on how to finance Medicare for All. These cost savings, I'm wondering, people who are now employed and have good insurance from their employer, will they see these savings or are these just imputed expenses that they don't actually pay out of pocket? Yes, if they're getting it through their employer, it won't feel any different. They will be able to see their same provider. It'll be as though they had insurance through their job. Now, on the other hand, they won't face the anxiety of losing their health insurance if they were to lose their job or if they wanted to switch jobs. And, again, they will see the benefit of... Households will pay into the system through... We we proposed a sales tax of 3.75% on non-necessities. So households will pay... But any household that is either paying through an individual insurance plan or covering out-of-pocket co-pays and so forth, they will see direct benefits. And overall, as I said, every family other than the wealthiest will see significant reductions in their health care expenditure. You're also proposing a uh, a modest uh, wealth tax, right? Yes. So we proposed a wealth tax of... 0.38%. So that would mean for the average top 1% family that the the return on their portfolio goes down from about 56 to 5.2%. That's not much. Uh, They still are going to be doing just fine. And that generates, because of the rise of inequality and the concentration of wealth at the top, that generates roughly the same amount as the 3.75% sales tax on everybody. So it generates almost $200 billion. It's a great revenue source. Although uh, likely to make uh, the plutocrats scream. Well, look, I mean, you know, we've allowed this neoliberalism to go on for roughly 40 years, and the result is, you know, an enormous increase in wealth concentration takeover of politics by the right, the far right, the crazy right, the center right. 
And so, yeah, it's it's this is a measure that advances egalitarianism. But, you know, by the standards of the world, it's pretty modest. Every other country already has this. They already have a version of this, and they have they're paying a lot less for health care, and they're getting better health care outcomes. And, and, you know, surveys of, of satisfaction are much higher, the results, in other countries relative to the U.S. You're projecting over the long term that U.S. healthcare expenditures would stabilize around, what, 15, 16 percent of GDP, which is still well above what we see in Canada and Britain and uh, quite above also Germany and France, who, who spend more than Canada and Britain. Why can't we get down to those levels? We're talking about a difference of a trillion or more dollars, which is enough to save the climate and have enough left over for dessert. So why can't we get down to those levels? Um, very good question. And, you know, one of the things we did with this study was to have reviewers. We really wanted it to be really heavily peer-reviewed. And we got a lot of comments from a lot of different people. And one of them was Jeff Sachs, who actually was extremely active and very helpful and was quite critical in some points and we addressed his points and that was exact that was his main question he's saying if we're going to do all this you know we end up with a system that the uh is going to cost 16 percent of gdp why can't we do better? I mean, if, if Canada and, and the others are at, you know, 11, 10, 9 percent. I'm worried I'm asking the same question as Jeff Sachs. As Jeff Sachs. Well, it, yeah, it's exactly right. <laughs> so the answer is this is this is where, I, you know, you know, I reviewed the literature. You know, our study is 200 pages, single spaced with 15 pages of references. So I just don't see us getting much further. Again, my, some of the other reviewers I had were pushing on the other side, saying, you know, you can't make these cuts. It's unrealistic to think you're going to get this level of savings. So on balance, this is where I think, I think is realistically we can get to. And if we can get further, I mean, if another way would be to, so I assume administrative costs would be 3.5% of the of total system costs. Medicare is already at at 2%, so maybe we can get it down to 2%. One of the reviewers is very eminent healthcare economist, uh, William Shaw at, at Harvard. He was saying that I was way underestimating the opportunity to cut back on fraud. He said fraud is 5% of all system costs. And uh, I said, okay, well, we can get it down by 2%. He said we can eliminate it, or almost effectively eliminate it. So there's there those things. And maybe those things will, you know, emerge. Yeah, that I'm not sure I believe that. There's plenty of Medicare fraud. I remember uh, my, when my mother was in the nursing home, they were uh, billing uh, Medicare about $100 a month for what they were essentially clipping her toenails. <laughs> so, okay, so here, this is one of the things, and this started when I did the study last year for California, that the Institute of Medicine, the U.S. Institute of Medicine, the National Academy of Sciences branch on medicine, did this huge study in 2010 where they said waste in the system, like what you just described for your mother, was roughly 35% of all costs. So uh, when I first started to calculate these things, it, it was like, okay, how much of this can we get? You know, we should be able to get a significant amount, but some of the people in the field said that that it was unrealistic we couldn't we you know it's there but it's impossible to get to so i really assumed that number was going you know i assumed that waste reduction was going to only be one and a half percent out of the 35 percent that's there so over time um 
I'm assuming we can get more, but even over time, I just assume that we could reduce waste by maybe 1% per year. So I assume that we could get initially Medicare for all at a little less than 16% of GDP and then stay at that rate. And the reason we can stay at that rate is we're getting savings from waste reduction at 1% a year while the population ages, and that's going to increase costs somewhat. That's where we are. If we actually could institute Medicare for all and stabilize at 15 16%, it's not as good as Canada, but it's a lot better than what we have now. Uh, I remember back in the uh, the days when the, uh, the Affordable Care Act was being debated, they kept talking about bending the cost curve. We bent it slightly, uh, although I think healthcare inflation has picked up again in, in the last few months. But yeah, can we keep healthcare inflation under control? Yeah, well, see, the, the basic problem, the historic problem in creating Medicare in the first place was that in order to get it passed, there was no consideration of cost control whatsoever. It was totally fee-for-service for providers and hospitals, and they set fees pretty much where they wanted. And then the private system basically tacked on 25% over Medicare. And that's basically what we've had going. Now, under the Affordable Care Act, there is very, very little success in controlling costs. Again, they still didn't want to confront the private system. They didn't want to confront the pharmaceuticals. Instead, they instituted these things, you know, um, these various quality control measures, which are very difficult to actually truly measure, as I've been told by a lot of physicians that that live under this kind of stuff. Um, And on top of that, uh, you know, they're easy to game the system. And then it, you also, the, one of the ways you game the system is you, you know, you only take the patients that, that don't need care because then you can provide high quality for them. So all of those things are going on. So that hasn't worked at all. But under the uh, Affordable Care Act, you know, it, again, to get it passed, there was no confrontation of any significance with the private health insurance companies or the pharmaceutical companies. So that's where the huge waste is. Where the, and until we go after that, it's going to be impossible to bend the cost curve significantly. Getting this at a federal level seems like a pretty heavy lift now. But now we have a couple of state governments where this is plausible. You, you mentioned California. I interviewed you when you did your California study. The new configuration of the state Senate in New York uh, means it could be possible here. Now, it failed in Vermont, uh, politically failed in Vermont. Uh, the right is using that, uh, or centrist Democrats now who are lining up against this idea too, uh, are using that as an argument against um, a national single-payer system. But if we can't get it at the federal level, how plausible is it for states to do it, especially the larger states? Well, I, I think it could pass in California. Like I said, it, in, in June 2017, it passed in the state senate. I don't remember the exact vote. It was something. I don't mean just politically feasible, but could you know could be finance, could be could it be managed? Oh well, yes. There's one massive challenge, and that is that in order for uh, any state system to be viable, you have the funds that are now going into the Medicare Medicaid system from the states have to be retained within the states now. One of the features of the Affordable Care Act was a provision introduced by Bernie Sanders, to his credit. The provision was that um, as long as the new system introduced by a state 
uh, could demonstrate that it was maintaining health care for its residents at the level that they were getting now, that the federal government was obligated to allow the state to undertake this system and to retain all of the funds it now uses for Medicare and Medicaid. So you need those funds because, yeah, they're like 60% of the total financing, all the public funds. But, you know, in reality, what is likely to happen if something passes in uh, California, say, and Trump is still president, is that Trump is going to deny California the right to do that. Well, then it'll become a lawsuit and probably go all the way to the Supreme Court. So obviously it would be much easier to enact something at the state level if there is a Democratic president who is at least mildly sympathetic to the idea. Yeah, that's, that's uh, you know, we have this coalition now developing in Congress of Democrats opposed to any idea of single payer, so not, not obvious at this point. Yeah, it's not obvious, but 70% of the population says they're for it. Uh, the argument was for a long time, yeah, you may be for it, but you don't know what the hell it is, and we can't, it's, you can't pay for it and all that. Well, I hope that my study and other people's studies have demonstrated that that simply isn't true. It was obvious all along that it wasn't true because for this, the reason that, you know, other countries are paying a lot less and they have some equivalent to Medicare for all. But in the U.S. case, so now we have these various studies, including ours, that make it blindingly clear that this is completely practical at the analytic level, at the financing level. It works. It works way better for almost everybody in society. It relieves people of all the anxieties they have about how they cover themselves when they have health problems, the financial burdens, the health burdens. Uh, so it's a, it's a much better way to run a healthcare system. On the other side, you have people making tons of money off of a bad healthcare system. So that's what we are going to struggle over. I was Robert Poland, a professor of economics at UMass and co-director of its Political Economy Research Institute, which put out the Medicare for All study. You can find it on the web at peri.umass.edu. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of Under the Doctor by Poison Girls from 1979, a rather different view of health care. Next, work and its critics. The anti- or post-work movement has some adherence on the left, fueled by the perception that automation will soon replace human workers. Is this true? Can the robots do all the work and write us checks in the form of a universal basic income, an allowance we get merely for existing, in place of the wage? 
Work is often a drag, yes, but I'm skeptical, and so is my next guest, Anton Yeager. Yeager is a graduate student at Cambridge, working mostly on populism, and is author of Why Post-Work Doesn't Work on the Jacobin Magazine website. Anton Yeager. Work has a complicated history on the left, the Marxist left and the non-Marxist left. We have people like you know, the early Bolsheviks who seem to uh, want to make us all into overworkers, where uh, you have uh, also an anti-work tradition uh, going way back, uh, at least to Marx's son-in-law, Lafargue. Let's talk about that a little bit, the anti-work tradition. What are the highlights of it? How does it figure uh, in, in the history of, of the left? Historically, you can definitely find a kind of unifying thread all these different figures that could count as anti-work Marxists. And Lafargue definitely plays a very prominent role in it, which I also think is that there's always a danger of imposing a kind of teleology on the tradition, which is just way more messy and way more complicated than we often presuppose. So Lafargue's book is usually popular in the late 19th century, mainly with anarchists. Uh, Marxists do take it on. But as I also mentioned in that article, it's, for example, has a really problematic reception history in the German labor movement because that movement is so strongly wedded against the obligation to work. So they have this idea that all workers should, everyone who's capable of working should be working. And I think there's really a qualitative jump in what you could call anti-work Marxism in the late 60s, where with the arrival of a fully fledged consumer society, there's first this idea that the jump from the sphere of necessity to sphere of freedom has finally become possible because of automation. And there's also a new way in which mainly European and Western societies, societies more globally, experience capitalist crises. And I think they don't necessarily experience them as a sort of dark of labor, but they now experience them as a kind of check on the libidinal release, which was made possible by consumption. And I think this completely changes the way we conceive of anti-work on the left, because work is now exclusively seen as a kind of suppression of spontaneity, which I don't think it was previously in the tradition. So I think we need to look at the late 60s and early 70s to really look at what is anti-work leftism or even anti-work Marxism today. Now, of course, there's a reaction against that coming from, from the right, and not just the right, part of the labor movement, uh, just condemned all these lazy hippies who wanted to sit around and get high all day. Get a job, hippie. Uh, but also uh, the, uh, you know, Reagan's story about the, the welfare queen who's collecting all these public assistance checks and driving around in a pink Cadillac. How does this, this, this fight over work figure in uh, on the right? So I think there's definitely a very powerful moment in the late 70s when the right manages to recuperate a certain workerism, which they think the left has abandoned. And it also has a real electoral constituency, which you can draw on to support this program. But at the same time, I think there's a deep ambiguity to the celebration of work that you see in Thatcher and Reagan is that they actually have the same vision of work as what you could call the sort of hippie generation, which is it's a, the suppression of spontaneity. But to the right, they agree descriptively, but that's a bad thing. So because they think people are intrinsically, I wouldn't say evil, but they're intrinsically likely to engage in excess and they have to be kept in check by masters, whether that's the state or whether that's the private government of an employer. They also say like, okay, but we need to return to a form of work that is disciplining, that it's self-disciplining. But in a sense, this is a celebration of work in a linguistic sense, but it doesn't get to the heart of what, what's specific about work, I think, because it actually just confuses work with employment. Yeah, I wanted to get to that point because you know, when we talk about work, um, do we mean a job? Do we mean being a sculptor? What do we mean by work? Work is a tricky notion because it lies linguistically very closely to something like employment and it's completely meshed with it. When we talk about something like labor, I think labor is a way of organizing 
humanity's relationship to nature. It's just a way of exerting control over nature. So it, labor, in that sense, is uh, the expression of a desire for independence. And we need to distinguish that from all these other concepts which are often bandied about in this debate, such as effort, employment, work, jobs, while work and labor as such to me is uh, simply the desire for humans to build their own environment, to humanize the environment, to make sure they have control of their own lives. And I think employment or our current sort of capitalist labor market offers certain ways of control. I mean, it certainly humanizes the environment, as we see with global warming, but at the same time, it does so in a highly unconscious and chaotic way. And I think it's this kind of confusion of these two overlapping human activities that really also uh, explains the contemporary crisis of work in a very profound way. Uh, fundamentally, if we don't work, we will die. We will have you know, nowhere to live, uh, nothing, no roof over our head, no food to eat, no clothes to wear. I had Kathy Weeks on the show a few years ago when her book came out. And I recalled my, my, my first wife uh, had a 1974 Fiat that was a peel, real piece of crap. It was a horrible car. Uh, but that was built uh, at the height of Italian operaismo. Uh, and, you know, anti-worker movement had really, you know, anti-work movement had spread pretty far into uh, the labor movement in Italy. Uh, and I, I kept bringing that car up. And I said, well, who will make the stuff that keeps society moving? And I, I never really got a satisfactory answer out of her. She kept changing uh, the, the story. She wanted to talk about how terrible so much work is, how many terrible so many jobs are. But I don't understand how this anti-work philosophy um, will put food on the table. Yeah, and I think that's the big question I ask myself. Is because they have this vision of work as a suppression of spontaneity, they think that a post-capitalist form of activity, because they always prefer the, the word activity rather than work, um, will have to be spontaneous and will be undone of all its coercive aspects. And I think this is not only unrealistic, I think it's also undesirable, just because something like full automation is a really attractive slogan, but at the same time, you really have to ask yourself the question how this works out in practice. And... I think the example they often give is there's loads of activity today which doesn't count as work because it doesn't meet the sort of benchmark of solvency associated with the market. And for example, one could take if 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 you really like handing out ice cream in the park, this is obviously a sort of activity which capitalist markets don't cater for. Um, if we live in a post-capitalist society, people should be able to just roam around the park and hand out ice cream because that now counts as a sort of worthy productive activity, basically. But where did that ice cream come from, though? <laughs> exactly. So the question is, where does the ice cream come from? Oh, it comes from a factory. What do you do with the factory? They say, oh, you automate the factory. The thing is, well, who builds the machines uh, for the automated factory? Who trains the engineers who build the machines for the automated factory? At the same time, this gets you into inevitably political questions of what do we automate? How do we automate it? Who do we train for the automation? And at the same time, there's this kind of problematic regress, which in the end, it applies an inevitable end to pure spontaneous activity because you have to coerce people into doing certain things. And at the end of it is a sort of coercive moment where you say, okay, now we're actually going to force people to do this because this is the activity we value as a society. This problematic regress in the end also shows the sort of weakness of the notion of work these post-workers have because work can be coercive but still fulfilling. This is the whole point about what Marx himself said when it came to post-capitalist labor is that you need to find these kind of procedures and you need to find these institutional mechanisms that actually allow coercion or uh, the enforcing of a consensus to be procedurally consistent and transparent. And so not arbitrary in that sense. What we have now is just a labor market which 
on a personal level is arbitrary, but also on an impersonal level is arbitrary because people just get allocated to these jobs, which are not necessarily suited for. But it's highly coercive, but arbitrary. But in the end, I don't think you can think of labor as non-coercive. I think you need to think through that concept of labor coercion and actually think out how we will produce, even if we manage to free ourselves of the market imperative. Uh, the um, anti-work or post-work people make several arguments, which I, I think are empirically uh, flimsy. But one is uh, that jobs are disappearing. Uh, and uh, since they are disappearing, we might as well just go with it and make that our program. I first saw, noticed this among uh, the late 90s, people like Rifkin and Aronowitz who are making this argument. But you see it now with uh, you know, Paul Mason and others uh, that uh, the robots are taking over and there's no more jobs anyway, so we might as well make the best of it. What's your reaction to that line of argument? Well, I'm highly, highly skeptical. I mean, I'm not a trained economist myself, so I have to rely on secondary accounts here. But I think what we need to realize first historically is that these kind of automation panics are really a cyclical thing, even in the post-war period. So they occur every like 15 years where you have this outpouring of literature of how work is disappearing. And surprise, surprise, 10 years later, work still hasn't disappeared. It's become more brutal um, and more coercive. But at the same time, work itself or sort of the employment relationship has not disappeared. There are two arguments to be made here. The first is a sort of descriptive refutation. The other is a normative refutation. Descriptively, what we are seeing is that the global workforce and in or the proletarian workforce has never been bigger in history. At the same time, there are now tricky arguments of whether there is a growing surplus population or so-called permanent surplus population, which means that now we have a sort of yeah section of the planetary proletariat that's pushed out of the wage relationship altogether. But even if like this descriptive statement holds true. The normative question whether we can have post capitalism without labor is just hugely improbable to me. Just think about something like decarbonizing an economy. If we need to actually save humanity from climate apocalypse, you will have to think about how you retrain and how you create all these kind of industries that actually allow us to survive. Uh, beyond our current current carbon economy. And if you want to do that without labor and with full automation, I think you're going to look, run into huge logistical difficulties to even, I mean, ensure survival for the human species. And in that sense, I find it normatively quite irresponsible to just say like, oh, we're working for a post-work, post-coercive labor future. Because, I mean, I think it really is quite threatening in the light of what's actually coming at us in the coming 50 years. I'm speaking with Anton Jaeger, who's written about the anti-work movement for Jacobin. The other argument they make, which I think is also empirically flimsy, is that people really hate their jobs. David Graeber, of course, has a book out uh, with the title BS Jobs. We can't say the full word on the radio, but uh, we, you know, that's, that's a, a popular argument that people find their work pointless uh, and hate it. The survey data is much more mixed than that, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, this depends from country to country. But when I actually started looking to it, is that I have a feeling that a lot of these post-workers uh, sorry, like to marshal out this evidence. But then when you look closely at the evidence they use, the evidence itself just gives a way more ambiguous picture of how people relate to their work. And I think, for example, Graeber's thesis is pretty good for this because he cites these statistics quite flippantly. Um, what you have is not BS jobs, but kind of BS in jobs. So, what a lot of these statistics point out is that people are extremely attached to work, however sort of degrading it might be, but they are extremely annoyed at the kind of relationships of heteronym and exploitation that run through their working lives. And the metaphor I always like to use is that of um, a sort of exploitative uh, love relationship. So you can imagine someone being in an amorous engagement with someone and seeing the promise of a certain 
freedom and seeing the promise of a certain pleasure, but at the same time that promise is is constantly denied or negated by the fact that they're being exploited by the other person in the relationship. And I think there's something similar to what you see, for example, I mean, I have people in my friendship circle who, for example, worked at baristas in service jobs for a long time. And as a sort of personal evidence, of course, this doesn't count, but it's exemplary in the sense that they say, well, I really like the part of the work that's sort of an expression of my independence, where I get to make uh, good coffees for people. And even some of the customer interaction, which is more pleasant than mere emotional labor, I quite enjoy. But at the same time, there's just constantly this tyrannical and despotic boss, which is around and which is telling me things or is telling me to run or to do things in a certain way, which is completely uh, contradictory to that desire for autonomy. And I think when you look at the data itself, this is actually the core of the problem is that there's a huge gap between what work is and what it could look like. So people see the kind of utopian promise in work today, but at the same time, this is constantly being negated by the actual state of our labor market. So again, there, the sort of factual evidence used by post-workerists is just way more unstable than they often presuppose. Yeah, I once heard this argument about nurses, for example. Uh, they uh, they love, love their work. They love taking care of patients. But what they don't like is the way the doctors treat them, the way their, their pay is stagnant, uh, the way they're always expected to do more and more work with uh, fewer and fewer resources. They like the work, but the conditions under which they have to perform it are what's oppressive, you know, not the, the work itself. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like there's a there's a tricky thing um, in just calling for the defense of the dignity of labor, because I uh, this was a critique of the article, which is often leveled is like, oh, um, he's just calling for the liberation of sort of socially value labor from capitalist labor. So from like concrete from abstract labor. And the idea is that, oh, you can just liberate the concrete from the abstract and everything will be done with. So the idea is if we just get rid of the doctors and the tyrannical hospital bosses, then the nurses can just run the hospitals for themselves. But there's a tricky thing because like even that concrete form or socially valuable form of labor is completely conditioned by the employment relationship. So I wouldn't just call for a defense of the dignity of labor. But at the same time, I think this easy abolitionism, which just says, oh, these nurses are just culturally wrong to, to believe that the work they're doing is valuable. I find not only condescending, but I think it's also untenable because it just doesn't speak to people's real desire for independence in many ways. By making your argument against work itself, uh, you, as you point out in the piece and you, you cite other people who pointed out, you're, you're, you're writing off uh, all questions of the organization of production and the organization of labor. We're not uh, talking about how we should organize work. We're not talking about how we should organize economic life. Uh, we're just uh, throwing up our hands and say, just write me a check for a UBI. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think the skepticism I have for the post-worker extends into the skepticism I have for the UBI. And I think if you look at the sort of long history or the kind of history of social policy in which these kind of basic grants have been proposed, I think the UBI is again, as we know it, a product, a product of the late 60s and early 70s, where there is first this idea that there is a sort of neutralization of production. You have a kind of abundance of consumer goods. Um, you have the idea that full automation is around the corner. So the sphere of production really becomes abandoned by certain people on the left in the ideas. Well, the main battle will now be waged on the level of consumption. But at the same time, it's 
again, an argument that's not very tenable because they had realized already 20 years later that still consumption was being determined by production. And if you want to seek emancipation in the sphere of consumption, you always have to ask the question, well, what is the sphere of consumption dependent on? Oh, it's dependent on the sphere of production. And if you don't control production, then you'll never be able to fully seek freedom in the sphere of consumption. And what the EBI does nowadays, I think, is that it naturalizes a whole list of sort of factors which are actually intrinsically political. So it naturalizes unemployment, it naturalizes low growth, it naturalizes the retreat from the sphere of production, which is already uh, going on certainly in the labor movement itself. I mean, there are technical objections to be made to, be, to the UBI. You can ask how much it costs, you can ask what it actually addresses some of the real problems with our labor market. But at, at the same time, I think the real problem with the UBI is that it's very, very unattractive politically because the vision that underlies it yeah, I don't think it's a vision hospitable to real notions of freedom, basically. Uh, what What's a better way to think about this, then? No, no, like thinking about work, you know, we want meaningful work in some sense, right? Can we well, can we do that? I mean, somebody still has to collect the garbage. I mean, so like... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I think a lot of post workers would acknowledge this. They, they're not, they don't think that their post-work society is going to do away with all of these kind of unpleasant forms of work, but I think they don't think hard enough about how that's actually going to happen. I think the way we talk about work needs to be semantically clarified a bit, as I do in the piece. I think we need to distinguish certain notions which just shouldn't just simply be collapsed. I think we need to distinguish work from employment, from effort, for example. And then secondly, I think we need to start talking about work itself, not simply as a source of an identity, which is just like such a classical trope in our identitarian zeitgeist, but as Again, the desire for, for freedom. It is like an expression of humanity's desire to control and change their environment. And as long as we see work as a kind of, yeah, as a source for meaningfulness, it risks just becoming a sort of status thing. Well, I think it's much more than just simply status. I think it is a question of how humanity, yeah, how humanity is able to change its own nature through, through work. And as long as we don't... Dis discuss it in those terms, I think we'll never really get to the core of the question. Under capitalism, we don't really see this clearly because, you know, the alienation of the money relation, the commodity relation. But, you know, in fact, work is a deeply social thing. I mean, it's how we get together uh, and work as humans together to uh, you know, keep the wolf from the door. This post-work stuff kind of writes that out as well, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it depoliticizes needs. So this is also what I say why they like the UBI is because they're very much a product of this kind of anti-normative moment in the left in the 60s and 70s where the kind of model of the Fordist wage earner was contested by all these alternative social movements. And the idea, what they love about the UBI is that it's purely a discretionary sum which you get at the beginning of the month and there is no sort of, I mean, to use a fancy Foucauldian term, there's no kind of biolytical imperative inherent in that sum of money. So you just go to the market if you want to spend it on drugs, if you want to spend it on food, if you want to spend it on actually building something, you can do all of those things. So there's no descriptive, uh, or sorry, prescriptive moment in that notion of the UBI. But at the same time, like if you really want to be that anti-normative, uh, at the same time, you have to be highly individualist. So there's no question of how needs can possibly be social. And at the same time, if you're completely anti-normative and you still want to regulate social life, I don't see how you have any institution left but the market, because the market is the primary or the ultimate anti-normative institution. It can cater for any need as long as you're structurally coerced into working. 
so there's this fantastic book by Melinda Cooper called Family Values, which is also about this late moment in the 60s where you have the rise of the anti-normative left. And she says, oh, there's an anti-normative notion of welfare that comes about, which is also related to the UBI. But at the same time, I think, well, that's just contradictory. Like an anti-normative notion of welfare doesn't exist. Uh, welfare is always an intrinsically normative notion. I think there's a big difference between rejecting normativity and contesting certain existing forms of normativity and saying they're exclusionary. And I think that's the same thing with the UBI. I think the UBI sees a real problem, namely sort of false forms of mediation or false forms of normativity. But instead of seeking to broaden or seeking to universalize those, yeah, those norms, it just rejects norms. Uh, as such, and it has to flee in the market because there is just no other institution that can actually populate regular social life except for the market if you've given up on norms. Yeah, I think we want better norms. We just can't get rid of them. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and you, you conclude the piece with an amusing anecdote about the Dutch Council against the work ethic. Uh, uh, it almost fell apart, right? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, as I start the piece, I say, oh, they founded it in 1982, which is a kind of watershed moment for the global labor movement as, as a whole. But then classically, as the 80s continue, they, yeah, they almost work themselves to death because they realize it's very, very fun to work together to abolish labor. And I think it, this is like quite funny in this case. It's a sort of ironic um, anecdote. I use mainly to wrap up the article. But at the same time, I think there's a darker side to this kind of pseudo-anti-work notion within a certain new left, is that, I mean, by the celebration of all these new kind of bohemian types in the late 60s, such as the artist who has no regular working hours, or all these other sort of, um, yeah, freewheeling academics, for example, what you see now is that a labor market which is being reshaped in the light of these kind of sociopolitical models. So everyone is now supposed to work as an artist does with the same amount of effective investment, um, like the sort of precarity of the academic labor market is now becoming a general feat of the capitalist labor market. And there's a darker side to the recuperation of this new left sensibility by neoliberalism, where, again, the rejection of norms has been recuperated quite effectively, and everyone now has to become like a precarious artist, um, while at the same time, the kind of exploitative nature of their work cannot adequately be theorized anymore. Yeah, the uh, do-what-you-love argument uh, it really becomes a rationale for low pay and, and uh, unpleasant working conditions. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I think this is the dark side of that Dutch Council against the work ethic is, um, well, they want sort of spontaneous labor. But I mean, if you want to, so they say, oh, labor has to become this form of spontaneous order. But that very much is a phrase that was coined by Hayek. And I think if you want to look for a vision of labor that's spontaneous, uh, then you have to look at Hayek. The only thing there is that, well, structurally, there's one thing which will remain beyond contestation. That's the commodification of labor power. So there's this really sad and at the same time interesting convergence between Hayek and some new leftists that this vision of spontaneity in the end just ends up with the market again. I was Anton Yeager, a graduate student at Cambridge and author of Why Postwork Doesn't Work on the Jacobin Magazine website. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of Work, School, Birth, Death by the Godfathers from 1988. Till next week, bye. Shut off trail.